Good morning. It is so easy to worship the Lord when it is so beautiful. I love this time of the year. I love how everything is so uh, alive. It's so easy to praise God, and what a beautiful day it is today. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that as we look into it, that you might open us to our hearts, who you are, your character, that we who have such small view of you would lift you up, would magnify you, would begin to think of what a great, exalted, holy God that we serve, who loves us, who loves us so much he's given his son a tie for us. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray now by the agency of your Holy Spirit that you would inhabit the speaker and the hearer, that we might have worthy thoughts of our Lord and King and that you would grow us in our knowledge and in our love of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have in the past been part of a lot of different ministries. When I was in college, I was part of Campus Crusade for Christ. Campus Crusade uses a 1952 track by Bill Bright, The Four Spiritual Laws. I have probably gone to hundreds of students on campus and said, have you heard of the four spiritual laws? And the first spiritual law is... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I was involved in the mid-80s with evangelism explosion from uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. And Coral Ridge similar, similarly has these, well, they have two questions. One of them, the first question is basically like, um, do you know that if you died, you would go to heaven when you died? And the second question is, if God were to ask you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And I was involved with the Billy Graham crusade, and Billy Graham has the steps to peace with God, and they basically ask, you know, do you understand that God has created you with a purpose, and that is to have peace and a fulfilling life. And while I endorse all of these ministries, and I said I've been, been very involved in each of them, and I've used all of those evangelism techniques, I applaud the good that they do. A lot of people have been won through these outreaches. I am not really impressed by the gospel that any of these uh, evangelism techniques use. Uh, Jim Boyce noted, he said that today's preaching is deficient at many points, but there's no point at which it is more evidently inadequate and even explicitly contrary to the teaching of the New Testament than its neglect of the wrath of God. God's wrath is a dominant Bible teaching and the point in Romans at which Paul begins his formal exposition of the gospel. Yet to judge from most contemporary forms of Christianity, the wrath of God is either unimportant or an embarrassment as an entirely wrong notion which any enlightened Christian should abandon. You think about where do most people, most Christians, most pastors begin when they start making the presentation of the gospel message. What's the starting point normally uh, when people start to evangelize or witness to others? Where do most Christian, where does most Christian preaching begin? And I contend that where it begins most of the time is with the felt needs of the listener, that we appeal to um, something in them that they acknowledge as a need. Maybe it's a, a feeling of inadequacy, maybe it's a a recognition of personal problems that they have or relationships or frustrations in developing their aspiration. Maybe it's their mood or their fears or bad habits that you're trying to get over. Maybe it's their sense of, of loneliness or some desire that they can't control. But the point is that according to this theory, 
we need to begin with the person's felt needs because that establishes a contact between the speaker or the preacher and the listener. The problem with that is it may establish, in fact, a contact between the preacher and the listener, but it fails to establish a, contract, a contact between the listener and God because felt needs are not necessarily the real needs that a person has when they're coming to the gospel. Um, it's not really felt needs that we need to appeal to. It's real needs that can actually um, affect how and if they can come before God. And the problem with addressing people's felt needs as opposed to their real needs is that we end up suppressing the truth. And here's the way that Paul talked about approaching people's felt needs. When he was writing to the young pastor Timothy, he said, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's what Paul has to say about addressing people's felt needs, that they end up hearing what their itching ears want to hear. And so obviously Paul is not a big fan of addressing people by their felt needs. Another way that's common mostly in our contemporary society of addressing people and to bringing them to the gospel is by offering them some sort of bait, you know, some sort of incentive, some sort of uh, promise that you get. Now, if you just admit that God is God, if you just recognize that, that Jesus is his son, then God will somehow be obligated to bless you with certain things. So if you uh, if you, you want to get something from God, you just simply acknowledge who he is. And now he, what emerges then is something grotesque like the prosperity gospel, which says that if you acknowledge God, then God is obligated to grant you wealth, health, and success. And Paul realizes that in the final analysis, it's not whether you feel good about your faith. It's not whether your felt needs are being met. It's not whether you have some meaningful religious experience when you come to Christ. What matters is whether you are in a right relationship with God. And to have that happen, you need to begin not with a person's felt need, but with his real need. And his real need is, apart from Christ, you are an object of God's wrath, and you are in danger of everlasting condemnation at his hands. And so to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is true if you're saved. It's always true that God loves you, but if you reject his offer, if you do not know God, there is not a wonderful plan for your life ahead of you. MacArthur added, the idea of a wrathful God goes against the wishful thinking of fallen human nature. It's even a stumbling block to many Christians. Many contemporary, most, much contemporary evangelism talks only about abundant life in Christ the joy and blessing of salvation, the peace with God that faith in Christ brings. All of those benefits do result from true faith, but they're not the whole picture of God's plan of salvation. The corollary truth of God's judgment against sin and those who participate in it must also be heard. For Paul, fear of eternal condemnation was the first motivation he offered for coming to Christ. The first pressure he applied to evil men he was determined that they understand the reality of being under God's wrath before he offered them a way of escaping it. That approach makes both logical and theological sense. A person cannot appreciate the wonder of God's grace until he knows about the perfect demands of God's law, and he can't appreciate the fullness of God's love 
for him until he knows something about the fierceness of God's anger against his sin and failure to, to perfectly obey that law. He cannot appreciate God's forgiveness until he knows about the eternal consequences of the sins that require a penalty that needs to be forgiven. Many Christians today, and I suspect just every unbeliever, if they know anything about God, they have the conclusion that there's really two gods, right? There's this Old Testament God of, of law and wrath, and then we have this New Testament God, Jesus, who's this God of grace and love. But are we talking about two different gods? Are we talking about two different natures? Or are we talking about two different sides of the same coin? That God is both holy and righteous, demanding and fulfilling the law, and he is gracious and loving and forgiving and merciful. A lot of well-known ways that uh, in the past that we see God expressing his wrath against sin. You see it fully in the Old Testament. We start with, the, with Noah. In the days of Noah, God was angry at the sin of men, and he destroyed the entire earth except for eight people who were on board the ark. Shortly after the time of Noah, um, some generations later, the people in defiance of worshiping the true God began to build a tower which became a very idolatrous thing, and God judged them and scattered the people for building this idolatrous tower to heaven. And then you have in the days of, of Abraham, very famously, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, and only Lot and his family escape. And you have that God destroyed Pharaoh and his army when they pursued the people of of, of Israel trying to bring them back to Egypt. And you see God's wrath being poured out against pagan kings such as Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. In fact, I think that's what the kids are talking about today in, in Sunday school is Belshazzar. We even see God pouring out his wrath upon his own people against King Nadab for, for committing evil. First uh, Kings 1525, evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of his father and the sin in which he made Israel sin. We see God, God's wrath pouring against, against his own people. Remember when uh, Moses had this revelation from God and his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam resisted him and God pours out his wrath upon them. No, we're, we're familiar with this idea of God pouring out his wrath in the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Do we see God pouring out his wrath? Well, yeah, we do. We see that God has already poured out his wrath on some, and he's very clearly declared in the age to come, at the end of time, he will pour out his wrath. We have, of course, the most famous declaration of God's love, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So you have this picture of the love of God. He loves so much that he gave his son. And yet, just a few verses later, we have uh, John 3, 36. He who does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Is there such a thing as a wrath of God? Does it, does it apply to us yet today? Of course, nobody likes to talk about the wrath of God, particularly when we're thinking about applying that to ourselves. But we have to think about that when we come to texts like the one we're looking at today in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, because it forces us to deal with the subject of the, God, of the wrath of God. But then, how do we deal with that? Well, typically in one of two ways. Either we think the description of God's wrath is somehow a, a blotch on his character, something that that is uh, 
not fitting of God. And so we must just simply re renounce that truth that says God is a God of wrath and say that can't be so because that's a mistaken notion. That's not the God that I love and serve, a God of wrath. Or the other conclusion that we're forced to come to is somehow if he has wrath, I am not deserving of it. It shouldn't fall upon me. Here the apostle introduces this subject of the wrath of God because he's trying to point out to us that nobody can fully appreciate the good news as good except against the backdrop of the bad news that we are guilty and we are subject to the wrath of God and his anger rests against those who are not saved. The good news has to be put in juxtaposition against the bad news. God is loving and forgiving, but he is also wrathful and uncompromising. And people today, in fact, they're not particularly concerned about the gospel. And if you tell them about that, they don't really care that much because they're not familiar with this revelation of wrath. They're, they're, they think that uh, since all they ever hear is that God is loving and forgiving, why should I need a Savior if God is so loving? What am I being saved from? They don't believe in God's wrath. They don't believe He's capable of it. And so they are listening to preachers every day who tell them about this unconditional love, and what they need to hear is that there's reason to fear the wrath of God. Let's look now to uh, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Take your Bibles and turn there now, if you will. Of course, you're all familiar with the analogy that in, before a disease needs to, is able to be treated, it first needs to be correctly diagnosed. You have to first see that you have a problem and before you can find the solution, the cure to it. Again, the Scripture reveals the bad news before it reveals to us the good news, the bad news of God's righteous judgment against sin that's being proclaimed against us until we can understand and fathom, appreciate, and be grateful for His gracious forgiveness that's been offered to us. A person doesn't have to seek salvation or forgiveness of sin if they think God's okay with them, if they think God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and He just accepts you as you are. Scripture makes it very clear that while God is loving and merciful and kind and forgiving, He's also a God of justice. He's also a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. Unless some people think that this God of wrath is an Old Testament concept, you have to realize that Jesus, God incarnate Himself, spoke more about the wrath of God than any of the other New Testament writers. In fact, all of the other New Testament writers combined. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Remember where we left off last week. Look back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. In the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous 
will live by faith. And now immediately he tells us in verse, four, in verse 18, he uses the word for, gar, because of. So something about this wrath of God connects us back to verse 17, the righteousness of God. The righteous shall live by faith. And we have now in verse 18, for, because, the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, we have a, some interesting terms there to begin with this. All unrighteousness and ungodliness. Well, that seems rather all-encompassing, right? I mean, that like covers every possible sin. But Paul's not talking about a multitude of sins here. He has one sin particularly in view here. It's a universal sin that every man, including every one of us, has committed. God is provoked to wrath. He is provoked to anger because of the sin of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 18. The idea of suppressing is like the idea of pushing down on a spring. You're compressing it. You're forcing it down. And what he's telling us is that we force the truth into our subconscious. We try to not deal with it, push it out of the way. And the problem with pushing down on this spring of the truth is it's always pushing back. You push down trying to suppress the truth, but it's always working its way back up. And the specific sin here of suppressing the truth, we have to ask, well, what truth is being suppressed? And he tells us in verse 19, what may be known about God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. So the truth that every human is suppressing is the truth of what God is revealing, what God has revealed that everyone knows. And he's telling us it's obvious because God himself has made it obvious to them. And you can see that in what God has made. God reveals himself in nature, and he's revealing himself to the entire human race. So again, Paul is talking about a knowledge of God that we get not from the Scripture. So we talk about general revelation and special revelation. When we talk about general revelation, we're talking about what can be generally known about God apart from Scripture, what every man would know. So there's certain things that he tells us about himself that uh, everyone is aware of, that God has made, him, made manifest himself. So who has made this manifest? God has himself has made this manifest to us. We don't, it's not some mystical truth that only the intellectual elite can figure out or only the theological geniuses can tell us about. This is an obvious truth, a knowledge about himself that God gives. It's not hidden. It's not, there's no mystical understanding in the Bible. It's not, it's made plain for everyone to see. God gives this, and he tells us this truth is manifest. Everyone gets it. Everyone knows about it because God himself is the teacher. Our failure to learn as students is not indicative of the inadequacy or the weakness of the teacher. Everyone knows there is a God of great majesty and power and holiness. The problem is that we suppress that truth. We refuse to deal with that knowledge. And yet Paul tells us that this is printed indelibly on our hearts. It's, it's in the very 
warp and woof of, of our, our human nature. They're, they're evidences about God, and yet we suppress this truth. Now, we're not unfamiliar with the concept of suppressing the truth. You know, we're familiar in contemporary psychology that if there's a truth that you don't like, you can suppress that truth and try to substitute on a different truth that you prefer. And when we don't like the facts, we refuse to believe. What we don't want to believe, we will not believe. We, and in the process of doing that, and I'm speaking of psychological truth here, in the process of doing that, it's amazing what uh, alternate explanations, what sophisticated explanations we can come up with in exchange for what is true. We don't want to believe, so we do not believe. And yet here we are told that God is the one who makes these things uh, makes us aware to, of, of these things. He has clearly shown himself to everyone. Verse 20 says, from, from the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Uh, the Latin word for clearly seen is conspicuous. Uh, God has made himself conspicuous to everyone since the creation of the world. He's not dropping a hint every few thousand years. It's like, I'm going to tell you something about me now and tell you something about me later. He, we're told that he's continually revealing these truths. He's continually manifesting himself all of the time. Every moment, God is revealing himself through the creation, the things that have been made. He doesn't just plant us in an amazing world and say, well, why don't you just sit down, stroke your beer if you got one, and think about lofty things and reason back from the stars that you see at night, reason back to a creator. You know, that's true. We should sit back and think about those things. But we're to do more than that because God is revealing himself every second. He's manifesting himself through the things that are made. He's, he's giving a testimony in nature that is plainly evident. What is he telling us that is so plainly evident in all of creation? Verse 20, he's revealing his eternal power and his divine nature. So again, we're talking about general revelation. What can we know about God apart from what is revealed to us in the Bible? What does every man, every place of every time know without being told about God. Well, we would certainly know that, he, that he, things like God's eternal power, uh, his self-existence, uh, we see that in, in everything that, that, he, that he's made. And we would know about some of his eternal attributes, such as immutability. That means that God doesn't change. He, he's, he is who he always is. We would know about his omniscience, that he's all-knowing. Uh, we would know that God is omnipotent. He is every place at all times, simultaneously. And we would know about those things that, that fit his deity. We would also know about that uh, there is a God, and as such, he has sovereign rule. He doesn't need our permission to make the rules. He doesn't need us to agree with him. He doesn't need our assent. As the sovereign king, he is able to command from his creatures Whatever pleases him to do so, whoever God is, he has the sovereign right to demand from his creatures whatever he wants to. And Paul says that God has made all of these things clear to us. There is, therefore, no excuse for ignorance. 
And nobody can say that, uh, well, you can't judge me because I never knew. God has made all of this information obvious to us. A plea of ignorance will have no effect on God. R.C. Sproul said, I'm frequently asked, what happens to the poor, innocent native in Africa who has never heard of Jesus? That poor, innocent native in Africa goes straight to heaven when he dies. He has no need of a Savior. Jesus did not come into the world to save innocent people. There are no innocent natives in Africa or Australia, South America, Europe, Asia, or anywhere else. People think that those who have not heard of Jesus are surely innocent. But Jesus came into a world already under the indictment of God the Father because it rejected him. We must disavow ourselves of the idea that there are innocent people anywhere. People also ask, will God send people to hell for rejecting Jesus of whom they have never heard? God's not going to punish someone for rejecting someone he's never heard of, but their destination is hell for the rejection of the one they have heard of. Every human being knows of God and clearly perceives God, but rejects that knowledge. For that, every person is exposed to the wrath of God. The only possible way someone can be rescued from that wrath is through a Savior. Paul is setting the foundation for the urgency of the gospel. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's interesting to me that God has created humanity with this capacity to recognize and to give honor and glory where it's due. And yet, though we are created with this capacity to recognize and give glory and honor, we refuse to honor God. The, the word honor, the verb here, or the word glorify, as some of our versions translate, um, refers to recognizing weightiness, the, the, the worth of somebody else or something else. In fact, the word worship comes from the Old English worth-ship. It's where we recognize God's worth and we give Him glory and honor. We magnify Him above ourselves. We attribute to Him glory, a glory, an honor that we dare not attribute to anyone or anything else. At least that's the appropriate way to honor God. And yet even seeing and understanding, even having this uh, inerrant awareness of the glory of God, yet we continue to suppress the truth and we refuse to, to give God the glory that He's due. I think about our capacity to recognize and give glory. And think about that in terms of it being a stamp of God's divine image on us, a picture of the Imago Dei which is placed upon us. Now, this last Monday, I went up hiking with Connie up to the top of, of Mount Townsend. And I, I love this time of the year to go up there because there's still snow in the peaks and, and there's the, this profusion of wildflowers everywhere. So I'm snapping pictures. How can a person look at the beauty of creation, the snow-covered peaks, the amazing profusion of wildflowers, and not verbally give glory to God? See, there's something about you when you look at, those, at a, the beauty of creation that draws you to verbally express that, that adoration and that amazement, the, the glory of such sights. Or likewise, think about our capacity to recognize 
and to give glory and honor to another human being. I mean, who deserves it? If you think about, well, you might not like the music of Josh Groban or or, uh, Kirsten Getty, but when you hear their voice and you go, that is amazing, you know, how can a human produce that? And your response is elation. You're drawn to admire and what they've done. Or think about when a, a decorated war veteran takes the stage. Your instinctual reaction is to stand and applaud because you were recognizing and giving honor where it is due. You are recognizing the worthiness in some arena. This uh, last 4th of July, I took my grandkids on a road trip to the Little House on the Prairie sites, and we ended up on the 4th of July, we ended up in this backwater town of New Market, Iowa. I had never heard of it. Probably has a population of 300. And this was the place to go watch the 4th of July things. And so we went there. There were probably several thousand people who had come for this 4th of July celebration in Newmarket, Iowa. And it was really interesting to me because, you know, everybody's sitting on this uh, semicircular hillside, and they had this stage, and there was a band there. They played both kinds of music, country and western. And... (laughs) But one of the songs they played was, you know, and I'm proud to be an American, we're at least done. And everybody, everybody shut up, stood up, and turned on their, their light on their cell phones. The whole crowd of several thousand people stood up because of their pride in being an American. And then, of course, they had a 60-foot American flag, and they, at, when it got dark, they asked for... 60 or 70 volunteers, and they wanted especially veterans to come down to lower this flag. Everybody stood up, and somebody played Reveille and Retreat. I think that's the song that you play when the flag comes down. And it was absolutely quiet as everybody stood, hats off, hands on their hearts, and they lowered that flag. It took like 15 minutes because it was such a big flag, and they had to keep it from touching the ground, and they had to fold it. You've seen it like at funerals when there's a flag folding ceremony and they're doing this to the 60-foot flag. Um, There's this honor, this national pride. So there's this this intuitive giving honor and glory where it's due. Now my point is that if we are so readily able and willing to express glory and adoration when we see something remarkable in nature, or we see that in a man that deserves our honor and recognition in, in human achievement, or we see that in, in the sense of patriotism to, to glory and honor, the symbol of our country, why is it so difficult for us to give glory and honor where glory and honor is due when it comes to worshiping and glorifying, exalting, lifting up, making high the person of God? and admiring his character. And that brings us to really one of the basic questions of our existence. You know, why do we exist in the first place? The answer is that our basic purpose for existence is to give glory to God. Everywhere we turn, we see that God's glory is evident, and yet people 
in their depraved nature refuse to give him glory and honor. We suppress the truth, and yet it's obvious in Psalm 19:1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and yet this is the this is the honor we suppress. Remember when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, Luke uh, 19, and the people are worshiping Jesus, and they, the, the Pharisees come out and say, tell your disciples to quit worshiping you. And the, of course, the implication is because only God deserves that kind of worship. What does Jesus say? If, if they shut up, the very rocks will cry out. Another version, they, they approach Jesus later, and, and they, they say, do you hear what the kids are saying? Uh, and they, they mean this rather indignantly. The kids, are, the kids are praising Jesus. They are shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of his father David. Hosanna to the king. And Jesus says, yeah. And have you never heard that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself? This is something that we are instinctively programmed as human beings made in the image of God to recognize and give glory. We were created for worship. That is the chief occupation of all of the beings in heaven, and it ought to be the chief concern and occupation of those who are bound for heaven, who are being prepared for that eventuality. As we worship God, we are setting Him apart from common things. We are, we are demonstrating through our, our adoration of Him that He is worth honoring, worth glorifying. We elevate Him. We exalt His worthiness. What is the chief end of man? Anyone? Who's a Lutheran here or a Presbyterian? You better know this. <laughs> the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is our chief purpose? It is to give God glory. Verse 21. For although they knew God, and people say, well, they're an atheist. No, they want to be an atheist. They don't want to worship God, and so they refuse to. But the Bible tells us that everyone knows God. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. Giving thanks, of course, gratitude. Gratitude is where you pause to recognize that you have a need and somebody has filled that need and you are recognizing the, the, that they have done that, that they have done something to meet your need. It's the act of giving thanks. We acknowledge someone else's kindness in meeting that need. James tells us that every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, excuse me, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Again, there is something in general revelation, that which can be known apart from the Bible. Uh, there's enough evidence that we can see God's generosity, we see God's provision, and the response ought to be gratitude. We ought to respond by saying that he has provided this. And, and every human being, not just Christians, ought to respond with gratitude, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain and the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. Yet the problem is, because man is suppressing this truth, this truth of general revelation that, of who God is, that they not only fail to give thanks, they won't give thanks. 
And ingratitude, as Paul is pointing out, is really a, a, a trait of human depravity. I mean, consider how, how ingratitude lies at the root of so much of our sinful hearts. It was a thanklessness really thanklessness really implies that what we have, we deserve. And we deserve everything good that comes into our life. And when we do that, we're denying God's common grace. Thanklessness acts as if everyone and everything exists for my comfort. And when we do that, we are... uh, we're expressing that happiness is God's ultimate desire for us. And we are rejecting anything that is difficult or painful that God may choose to send into our life. Ingratitude acts as if that uh, there's nothing of value or importance except as it contributes to my sense of satisfaction and well-being. And when we do that, we say that whatever God gifts Whatever God gives us has to be good according to what I determine is good in my wisdom. And when I seal my lips to giving thanks and gratitude to God, I am considering that I am the center of the universe and that everyone and everything else is subservient to my desires. And when we do that, we are denying that our role is that we are his servants and he is God that he is our Lord, and by definition, if he's the Lord, you're not. Why are we thankless? I think because in the end, we resent God's authority. We prefer to think of ourselves as the sovereign ruler of creation instead. We object to his honor because we prefer that we be the object of praise. We deny God's provision because we think that uh, we, don't, we don't deserve anything less than whatever is good that comes into our lives. And so ingratitude raises in our hearts in defiance of God's kindness to us. And such is the response of man in God's revelation. We refuse to honor him or glorify him as God. We refuse to express gratitude to him as the giver of every perfect gift. And we do this because... We have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I think it's interesting that the most fundamental sin in our fallen, corrupt nature, even today, is idolatry. basically the sin of refusing to give God the honor that's due him. And we want to strip God of his divine attributes because we prefer a God that's more like our imagination. We prefer a God of love and kindness and gentleness. We don't want to deal with a God of justice, and we're uncomfortable with the concept of God's wrath. And so we strip God of his divine nature because we prefer something other than what God has revealed to us in the scripture. We like this God of love. We like the God of joy and fulfillment. We do not like the scripture that talks about that God is angry with sin, that God is just, that in order to be just and holy, he has to deal with sin and injustice and that which is not holy. In the process of doing that, we are suppressing the truth of God. 
People refuse to honor and thank God because they turn to idolatry. You know, that's still true today. There's a billion people today who are like Hindus or uh, uh, Buddhists or syncretists or animists. A billion people today still bow down to images, what we would call idols. Now, they don't really think that that image in their backyard is their God. They think it represents their God. It has certain character qualities which represent their God. And yet a billion people today. Now, we don't have any problem thinking about ancient people worshiping idols. You know, yeah, we, we acknowledge that that happened. The truth is, people today worship idols too, just not idols made out of wood or stone. We worship the idols of wealth and power and acceptance and significance and pleasure and, and fame and peace. And we are dead set to pursue to fulfill the needs of these idols. You think I'm stretching it? You think I'm reaching too far when I say that we're still idolaters, that we still worship idols today? Well, if you look back in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, here is this metaphorical sense of idolatry being linked to Exodus 32, a literal form of idolatry. In this case, self-indulgence and immorality. Then, Colossians 3, Paul, um, Paul describes the unbelievers' union, or excuse me, describes the believers' union with Christ, and he says, put to their death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry, not my words, the Scripture. So our, our, our longings can be linked to idolatry, our, our greed, our love of money. These can easily function as idols. And in that sense, they're idols because they absorb our attention, they demand our affections, they fill our thoughts. There are certain rules laid down that we must follow to obtain whatever it is we want our idol to give to us. Jesus also warned that money can be an idol. He said you cannot serve God and money, Matthew 6, 24. Paul points out that your appetite, your belly, can be a, 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 an idol, can function like an idol. Uh, Philippians 3, 9-er-ish, some, somewhere in there. <laughs> Tim Keller says that religion and morality can also be idols because to meet their moral standards, we become proud, self-righteous, while those who fall short are crushed by guilt. So here we are creating things which are literal or metaphorically idols, and we are bowing down before them. And the problem is that we are designed and instructed to worship and give glory and honor only to God and to nothing else, or it's idolatry. Yet in spite of our defiance towards Him, especially us, because we know better, and yet we continue to defy Him, God has provided a way of deliverance, a way to be delivered not only from sin, but the effects of our sin and our addiction to it. And that way is through Jesus Christ, His only Son. God can deliver us from the sin. He can deliver us from creature worship, from ingratitude. And these things which are also so entwined to our human nature because of our sin nature. Yet we have this merciful Savior who is willing 
and able to save all who will call upon him and express repentance and faith. The point I'm trying to make is just this, that we mention the wrath of God today as Christians and we see it as a, a source of embarrassment, you know, even incredulity, incredulity, incredibleness. <laughs> We're embarrassed by the subject of the wrath of God. The reality is that a secular person is going to tolerate the is, is not going to tolerate the God of the Old Testament because he sees that as being a God of arbitrary rage and much prefers the God of the New Testament, Jesus, who is so merciful and accepting and not demanding. But are we really dealing with two different gods? Are we really dealing with two different natures? Or are we dealing with the same coin but two different faces of the same coin? The expression of God's holiness, his holy nature. See, the reason the people aren't going to turn to Christ is they don't have any reason to. You're not going to run to a Savior if you feel like you're not fleeing from, from God's wrath. You're going to turn to him because you know that you need him. And people today are not going to know a God of of uh, grace and mercy and love until they first come to terms with this revelation of, of God's wrath. Well, let's pause for a moment of prayer and we'll ask God's blessing on the, the uh, elements here. I'll ask Janet and Connie if they'll come forward and the men who will be distributing the elements, would you come forward and um, hand them out at this time? And uh, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we see these elements laid before us and it is a, a table, a representation of the table which is yet to come in your kingdom when we sit down at the banquet of the wedding feast of the Lamb. We are invited to come to this table. All who wish may come. All are invited to come to this table. And while we see it as representation of the banquet which is yet to come, we also look back on the terrifying thing which brought this communion into existence, and that is when your wrath against our sin was poured out on the innocent victim of your son who had never been separated from you, had never known your indignation, had only known your love and the relationship that righteousness afforded him, and yet at that moment, he became sin in my place. We remember as we take these elements that this bread represents his body which was lived in perfect obedience in absolute submission to your authority without sin and we look to this blood which alone satisfies your wrath against us father you can look down on our sin only as you look through the blood of jesus which covers us. And because of his blood, you consider us as righteous as he is. Because of his body, that credit transferred to us, imputed to us, it's an amazing thing. So, Father, we ask you to set aside this bread and this juice to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Take these common, ordinary elements and apply them to a sacred, holy purpose. 
And Father, at the same time, we ask that you would take these common, ordinary lives and apply us to a sacred purpose and remind us that we exist not for our enjoyment, but for your glory. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Uh-huh.
For what I have received from the Lord I also pass on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we take this bread, we are remembering he lived a life of perfect righteousness which satisfied God's demands. And he did this granting us his righteousness in place of our own. This is the body of Jesus which was given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We look back to the cross. And we look forward to the banquet that we will all share in heaven until he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we pray to you and we give thanks. We acknowledge with grateful hearts that you are a God of such love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, that you loved us so much that you would spend the wrath that we deserved against your son who did not deserve it. And for a moment in eternity, that divine union was severed as wrath became the substitute for love. Your wrath was satisfied on the cross. Your anger propitiated at that moment. Lord Jesus, as we pray to you, we want to give you thanks with grateful hearts that in obedience to the Father, because of his love for us, you would do such a terrible thing to become the object of his wrath that you would suffer for my sin. Thank you. Holy Spirit, we pray to you that you would make these truths alive, that they would change how we think and how we live, that we would bring glory to the Father through worshiping his Son. And we who are called to be the bride of Christ, would begin to think and act and live that way. Father, we pray that you would take these lives and let them be a reflection of your glory and help us to have this urgency of our mission to use the time that we have that others might come to know it too. We ask these things as we approach you, Father God, through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.